Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today, we have a a guest that I'm really excited to learn from and speak with. She is a a radio host. She's an author. um, She's also a photographer. She's someone that is extremely passionate about the world of brain health, the world of brain injury, really also around the world of kind of thought leadership and, and trying to find ways to change the status quo. Um, she's very passionate about brain injury, and we'll get into this a little bit more together as, as, as we go. She'll explain some of the reasons why. Uh, and she's a real leader, a thought leader in the space of, of brain injury. And you know, she is the, the host of Brain Injury Radio. And I'm just really excited to have uh, Kim Justice with me here today. Uh, Kim, is there anything I missed in the bio that you'd like to add? I don't think so. Great to be here today, Mark. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the time out of your day. Kim, typically, you know, people that, that listen to this particular podcast, these might be people who have suffered a brain injury themselves, are really interested in, in brain health and innovation. These can also be people that maybe are professionals that work in the space and are uh, looking to better understand some areas related to brain injury and brain health and kind of everything in between. Uh, so you're somebody who has a great amount of experience. And if we were talking earlier before this, you know, we, we have some similar friends and contacts that we've talked with over the years, you know, for people that are listening and, and given all of your experience, what's kind of a main thematic message that you'd want for people to better understand around the world of brain injury and, and brain health? Well, first, I just might briefly explain that in 1995, I had a ruptured brain aneurysm. It nearly died. And if you think back, there wasn't a computer on every desk. There wasn't social media. There wasn't internet. We didn't have any support groups. So I journaled in that first year of 95 when I was tied up. And then I wanted to try to put it out of my mind as far away as I could and not think about it anymore because I tried to communicate with people. And for many of us, it's the silent epidemic. We look the same after the gritty details, you know, of the event. We we might look the same and sound the same, but we're not. And so you try to find the words to articulate that to people, to your doctor, to your loved ones, and they don't get it. Their expectation and our expectation, frankly, is that we have this incident, we want to go back to normal. And so for 17 years, I was very isolated and polarized. I stopped talking because my talking wasn't being understood. It was being twisted. It was being perceived as something other than it was. And so I stopped talking and I didn't communicate anymore about my brain injury. I carried that on my own. And it, 
you know, it caused some, some negative effects in relationships, both me with myself and with others. And so when I had the opportunity, I wrote my book 17 years later, when I had to leave my career, I had been a financial consultant for 25 years. And when they, I was fine, my long-term memory was doing good. And I kept, you know, kind of working part time in there and acting as if, but then Madoff happened and, and, um, affordable health care happened. The rules all changed. I couldn't retain it. And I needed to leave my career. So that was another jumping off point. And my husband said, why don't you write that book? Every year I've heard your mom talking about you really need to write a book about your experience. And I always used to say, someday I will. I'm much too busy. When I have a clear desk, maybe I'll get around to it. And my husband you know, motioned in. I had a real office, but then I also had one at home and he motioned in and he said, looks like your desk is clear. I don't blame <laughs> you for feeling what you're feeling, but your desk is clear. And, you know, that was like throwing the gauntlet down. And so I wrote that first book in a flash miracles here and beyond when I didn't know anything about brain injury, except my story. I didn't know anything. So it's a, it's a survivor story. And as a result of that, I, my God, that 17 years, and I told you before the show, I think um, coincidences are God's way of working anonymously because I have so many examples of these in my life. But had I written my book back then, nobody would have known about it and the rest wouldn't have unfurled the way that it did. But when that book came out, people from traditional media outlets and then people from media outlets like this got a hold of me to do author interviews. And it was during that that the person who founded Brain Injury Radio Network heard an interview. What he had found out, and, and they've been around 13 years, was he was not as far out from his injury when he started it. He was doing it one night a week. What he found out is that there were so many people out there like me, <laughs> uh, like he was, that the doctors, the traditional medical model didn't understand it. Support groups weren't out there. There's a lot of alliances and associations. I've got opinions on that. We'll talk about later if you have time. They have a lot of things when it's awareness month to whip up some statistics. But if you're a survivor and you need help, you don't find it there generally. And so he decided that brain injury radio should be on seven nights a week. He heard my interview. He reached out, asked me if I'd be interested in being one of the original hosts. I said, oh, gee, thank you so much. Um, I'm not qualified to do that. I don't know. I'm not computer literate. I don't know anything about media or broadcasting. You know, my background was in sales. And he said, okay, all right. He said, let me just ask you before I let you go. He said, were you an author before you wrote your book? <laughs> no. And you do have a brain injury, right? And that's one thing about all of us hosts on Brain Injury Radio is we all have a brain injury. 
And I said, yes. And he said, what night do you want? And I just said, Wednesday. I love it. And I've been there for 10 years, every single Wednesday, uh, except five. When my husband and I have an opportunity to go somewhere for our anniversary, we got married 05, 05, 05 at five. So I would always remember our anniversary. And um, so I became an advocate. And what I said early on, probably my second year, I realized that I learned more from other survivors doing my weekly show than I had from the traditional medical model in nearly two decades before that. And so peer-to-peer support is huge in learning how to, I'll use a trending word now, how to reimagine yourself, how to find the words to articulate to the medical professionals of what's going on with you and how to stand your ground and not get patted on the rump off to the next, you know, because there's nobody to coordinate your care. You know, the neurosurgeon does the neurosurgery and then sends you off. The neurologist, you got to be really careful because they have that title doesn't mean that they specialize in traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injury. I went on later, by the way, in 2015 to get a TBI from a really bad whiplash concussion from a fall. So also in the beginning, when I started, there was a big distinction between the TBI, the ABI, you're a stroke, you're a car accident, you're this, you're that. And there was this frat house mentality about brain injury. And Craig had such foresight in calling it brain injury radio, because that covers the gamut. And survey says, statistics show that people who have had one brain injury are more apt to suffer subsequent brain injuries of various kinds over the course of their life than someone who's never had a brain injury. Now, I actually played that out myself, so most of our hosts, so most of my callers. Now, none of that stuff would I have known had it not been for the stories of other survivors. And so, you know, I would encourage and I do encourage listeners when something resonates with them to get the link and give it to their doctor. Whether the doctor is going to listen or not is another thing, but it's not in their textbook. You know, a page and a half doesn't cover what we're dealing with every day for the rest of our lives. Page and a half doesn't do it. So no. if you can find resources out there, whether it's a blog you read or, you know, this show or a link from our show or anything that really addresses what you're dealing with in a way that articulates it more clearly than you might be able to, I encourage people to share that with their medical professionals. I love it. And, you know, I think you covered so much there, Kim. And thank you for that, for sharing all that. I think it's going to meet so many people where where they need to be met because, you know, and I've fallen into this for sure myself. We were talking earlier about some experiences I had medically as well, where I, you know, sometimes assume, well, that's the doctor and the doctor knows absolutely everything. Well, 
you know, the best doctors are the ones who can be a little bit vulnerable too to say, well, this is, this looks promising and it, it seems really good, but let's, let's understand together how we respond and how it's working for you. And I think that's something where you know, that, that's one piece that I extract from there that I think is really wonderful to share. And the, and the other piece is some of, and I agree with you on this one, some of the greatest learnings that I've had and continue to have is from people who have had that lived experience through it. Like, like you're saying, and I just couldn't agree more. You know, one of my greatest teachers in all of this work is uh, also an ABI um, uh, survivor. Her name's Mary Ev. And I often go back to her teachings to me. You know, when she came into you know, some of the programs that we offered and, and supported with, you know, she kept mentioning this kind of uh, word of reclaim. And underneath that word, she meant, you know, following my ABI, you know, before it, you know, I was this, this wife, you know, this daughter, this friend. And after the injury and the multiple neurosurgeries, I just wanted to reclaim some of what had been lost so that I could move on. And I just, that, that motivates me like all the time when, when, when I'm looking at different programs and how to help people, I'm like, okay we got to find a way to provide an opportunity for this individual to reclaim. If they want to, we, it's our responsibility to try and find at least an option for them to make a choice to reclaim some of what they've said. And my goodness, thank you so much for sharing <laughs> all, so, so much of your experience, um, because I'm sure that what you're doing is motivating so many people and helping so many people. Well, and another thing, too, when you were talking about reclaiming, Sometimes it's redefining because I'm embarrassed to say how many years it took me to realize this, but I thought I had burnt my skill set, that it got fried with my injury. And that left me with in an option reduction situation because all I had done was that one career for my whole life. And when I thought I burned the skill set to do that and had to leave it, I was in a pretty dark, place. And what I found out, silly me, it took me years to figure it out. But what were the basic elements of what I did before in my career? I networked. Mm. I educated or interviewed people about financial services, now brain injury. You know, so there was, there was networking, there was prospecting, there was research. I hire, recruit, and train all of our new hosts. I used to do that with agents. So the thing was, it took me forever to realize my skill set wasn't burnt at all. It was redirected into a passage that more suited my lifestyle now. And I got my sense of purpose back instead of feeling like I lost my purpose because too often we define ourselves by our job, you know, by what we do for a living or by how other people have defined us and we've taken that on and that isn't necessary. You know, we all go through different passages in our life, whether it's brought up because of an illness or a change in lifestyle, divorce, death, whatever it might be. And we're required to reinvent ourselves more than once in our life. Yeah. And we, we grieve the old, but, one of my sayings is we can look back, but don't stare. You know, we're never going to forget that. We can certainly look back, but don't stare. 
and don't stand rooted in one place, be willing to move forward because it's not important. Some of the things that were important before to be competitive, to be the best, blah, 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 aren't the things that are most important to me today. The fact that I got up off the bench and tried yeah. is really important to me today, you know, that, that I did that. Huge, I might not, might not have felt like it, didn't want to do it. Um, if I couldn't be the best at it, there's all kinds of bill of goods that we sell ourselves, but it's empowering to get up and try and to not put an expectation that's not realistic there. The realistic expectation is that we're going to get up and we're going to try something new and we are going to take away a lesson from that. No matter how we think we perform, we're going to have been empowered by trying and we're going to have a takeaway that's going to stick with us of what part of that worked for us and what part of that might be done differently to enhance it, which I think is great. I do do too. I think it's, I think it's amazing. And, you know, I, I I think that's such an important and often not talked about part of this journey. Like, I I think it's, you know, rewind that one and listen to to what was just said there, because I think it's often not mentioned. And, you know, I think it's, you know, aligning purpose with skill set is really what you're talking about there. And I, th- I think that's wonderful. Like really, really, really take that in. Um, because I hear that time and time again as well. And, you know, whether it's, you know, an 18 year old with post-concussion syndrome or a 65 year old with a post-stroke, one's goal might be to get back to college or university or back to work. And another's might be to play independently with grandkids, uh, regardless there is this, this skill set that they want to try to bring back up to a level where they can participate more independently. And I think what you just said there is such an important, important point. I want to ask another question, if I could. If there was kind of one thing that you could change in the, in the kind of brain injury landscape, and you only get to pick one, we'll do another one the next time we do this, <laughs> but only one for now. Is there one thing that you would want to see change and what would that be? I'll speak to the, what I call the traditional medical model. One of the things I'd like to see is an inclusion of integrative healthcare because the way that the system is working right now, I mentioned to you before the show is The doctors save our lives, and I don't downplay that. But after that, a lot of us walk away with residuals, and the surgeon isn't the one who's going to handle that, doesn't know anything about that. The internist has often had a page and a half on on brain injury um, in his text. The neurologist may specialize in something other than traumatic brain injury. It's hard to find the right group of specialists. And at least in the United States, uh, pill pelting is the first line of defense. And a lot of those drug side effects are contrary and play right into residuals we have, like memory issues, suicidal ideation, uh, many things. And I guess what I would like to see, things like hyperbaric oxygen treatment, EMDR, DBT, 
meditation, mindfulness, yoga, some things that are not in that traditional medical model. And because there's nobody coordinating our care, what I find is that a lot of people go to every kind of doctor they can find when they've got the energy and things either work or don't work for them. Normally, a lot of things don't work for them. And then they get tired and frustrated and they stop. Just like I stopped talking earlier on, I stopped looking for answers to help me. And then because of shows like this and because of shows like Brain Injury Radio, where we do include elements of holistic or alternative care, I've actually had people in some other time when you've got more time. One thing I'll just tell you real quick, because I have to tell you this. I had someone on talking about hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And uh, of course, the FDA doesn't approve it for TBI, but there are freestanding clinics. I have a gentleman who lives across the country I've never met, but a frequent listener who'd been in a wheelchair for 35 years after a, a devastating accident had tried everything the traditional medical model had to offer. He heard my show that night and on a whim, and, and my guest, by the way, was somebody who had an HBOT clinic in North Carolina. This guy lived in Northern California. He found a place and I gave, you know, how you find reputable ones and all kinds of that. Right. Anyway, Anthony wound up going, he found a place 15 miles from his house, which in California is not a big deal. He could use public transit to get there. He doesn't drive. He did hyperbarics. And after 35 years, he's able to walk with wow. a three-wheeled walker. So I've actually seen miracles in my tenure doing my show. And Anthony is one of those that I hold up because he couldn't believe it that 35 and that's that also debunked something in the medical model that said it it said when i came out in 95 that at the end of one year what you see is what you get yeah oh my god it drives me crazy and yes. then three years what you see is what you get and i'm here to say there isn't a period on what you see is what you get you just haven't run in to the right treatment modality yet, and your traditional medical model isn't suggesting it to you because it's not covered by insurance, it's not in their network, they have no knowledge of it, and they can only speak to what they know, which is a very little slice of the pie of mitigation and recovery along the lines of brain injury. So that's one big thing I'd like to change is being not only including it, but if you can't include it, shutting up and not downplaying it because it's not something you can't offer. I've heard a lot oh. of doctors say, well, that sort of thing doesn't do any good or, you know, that's snake oil. Well, you know, they don't know that unless well, they've gone oh and tried it. Yeah. They don't I know that. That's the thing that gets me. And that's why some of the, um, I've been fortunate to, like you, meet some pretty amazing people. And, but also some people who are pretty, uh, have a lot of biases. And, and, and sometimes uh, I think don't necessarily acknowledge those biases. So, 
you know, for me, I, I am skeptical naturally. That's kind of, but I, I own it. Right. Like, like yeah. I just kind of built that way, but like if something worked for someone and I worked in that area, I almost feel like it's my responsibility to at least be open to gain a better understanding of what may have occurred there to help that person. And, and that is the thing like you, I so struggle with is if something is working for someone and it might have the opportunity to further inform how I approach treating someone. I view it as I have a responsibility to better understand what might be going on here. Keeping in mind, I'm still allowed to be skeptical. I'm allowed, but I need yeah. to acknowledge that first and then seek to better understand. And, and I think I love what you said there. I've never heard anyone say it quite like that. So I acknowledge you. Well said, because I've seen this over my career. And it's one of those things, you know, it just reminds me of a story that, that really further supports what you're saying. I, I remember working in, in the education sector, as I said earlier, I used to, used to work in, in that sector. And I remember we were doing this cognitive rehabilitation work that's focused on neuroplastic intervention, which is a little bit different. And I get a little bit outside of the norm, right? So I can understand how more traditional psychologists might be kind of curious, like, hmm, what's that all about? But it was really interesting. This one psychologist was doing psych ed assessments. And I remember talking with her and, you know, I had a vested interest. Of course, I ran these schools. So there was a bias there towards the schools for sure. But this psychologist kind of said that many of the kids that she saw were, were experiencing actual cognitive change based on psych ed assessment, which is amazing. When you think about that means the potential, the learning potential is actually higher. So the, the capacity to do more is actually there. The foundation has been lifted, which is a wonderful thing. Still work to do, but it's a wonderful thing. And, and I, she gave me that information. I said, well, isn't that, that's really cool. And thanks for sharing that. And I said, so how's it going with that? Or is it something that like, what do, what do people think when you say that if you come across people that have that profile and you tell them, yeah, there is a private school that, that is here that could actually potentially help you with that. But it is a private school. So that means I get to pay tuition, all these kind of things. And she said, well, I don't even really mention it. And I was like, but, but why? Well, because it costs too much money. And I stopped because imme immediately I'm turning red going, like, we don't know what the value of the child in improving their cognitive function could actually mean to the child. It's actually up to the parents of that child to understand what that could be worth to them. And I'll never forget it. You would have been proud of me on this one. I, I, I went to her and said, you know, so what you're saying is you found this potential for change that could be there if, if the child could engage. And you withheld the information about this option for this family. And she said, yes. I said, so do you think it's your right to do that? I think at that point she went ghost white and quiet. But I was like, I think you have to be very careful with that. Because, you know, you, you're in a position of trust. And I don't think that's right. I think the best thing that they could say in that position, and, you know, she was dead wrong. You're right. It's their choice. Is if a doctor isn't going to, it's if they don't see it incumbent on them to learn more, as you say, which we all wish they would, the best thing they can say is, if the person puts out the option or if they give out the option and then they put the, the disclaimer on to protect themselves, I don't know a lot about this, but I've heard right. from some other patients that they've seen some success with this modality. Then they've got, 
they've done their due diligence as far as I'm concerned by letting someone know of the availability to, to, to stymie that hopelessness that they get when they walk out of their office. They can walk out with maybe a little bit of hope that there's something else out there. And the doctor can still do the disclaimer and tell the truth. I personally don't know much about this, but I have had a few patients bring it up and say that they've seen some relief. It might be worth a try and get their disclaimer in, but do their due diligence of actually addressing and validating things outside of their field of practice as possibly being successful. Exactly. And I think that's more than fair. And I think it's, it's just interesting. It's a kind of almost like a lesson in in in, know, in owning your biases. I guess is what I, I, I try yeah. to extract there. Now, I mean, of course, we're you know we're coming up to the time here, and I want to acknowledge you know you for your work, and I want to be able to kind of publicly provide you with the opportunity to be able to share some of the information that that people could get, so that they can <clears throat> learn more about you, more about your work. And really support you in what you're doing, because I think what you're doing is that the messaging is important. The voice is extremely important. So if people are out there listening right now, they're saying, oh, my God, she explained it the way, <laughs> the way I finally needed to hear it. How can people get a hold of you and, and support more of your work? I do have a website. It's all one word, lowercase and in a flash dot org. All right. Now, I think websites are kind of the driver to everything else that somebody has. But inaflash.org has my books, has my shows, which, of course, are at braininjuryradio.com. But on my own website, it talks about I'm on every single Wednesday night, 7 o'clock Pacific, 10 o'clock Eastern. The shows are all live to archive. They go to all 50 states and 49 countries. Again, I've been doing it for 10 years. So I think inaflash.org gives you a way to contact me, shows you the books that I've written, shows you all of my shows, and gives a little synopsis of what I'm about. Careful. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of the, the story of the, of the person, I think, with Brain Injury Radio, where they said, you know, were you an author before you wrote your book? <laughs> Look, at yeah, you've Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. Uh, Kim, he it's, got it's, me. It's remarkable. Yeah, he got me. It was it was time and another coincidence. And the last thing <laughs> I would in in relation to that, one of the things we've noticed as a group, and your folks are welcome to join on Facebook. I also have a Facebook page, and it's facebook.com/slash/inaflash.org, just like my website, but it's my Facebook page, same name. But one of the things we found out is that if people were artistic before their brain injury, they somehow get to seem and more so and branch out in other areas of art. And if people considered themselves to not be an artist at all, oh God, I'm not artistic before their brain injury, that after their brain injury, they suddenly blossom in an artistic sort of way. So whenever we lose something, we gain something, but you wouldn't believe we started a page on Facebook called disability art page. And it's meant for people that have a variety of disabilities, but it was started by brain injury radio. And it has gone over so big because 
a lot of us had too narrow of a vision of what art was. We thought that meant that you could freehand uh, draw a horse's head or something. I don't know. But, you know, finding out how broad art is, you know, becoming an author, a photographer, maybe you're a wood carver, a musician, as the founder of Brain Injury Radio is people do mosaics, they paint pictures. And that's a really empowering way to go through the process of recovery and discovery mm. about your new reimagined self. So I love it. No, I absolutely love it. And we'll make sure that that's in there for people to click on and to, and to support and learn more about, you know, I just, again, want to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And, you know, if there's more that we can do to support you, you know how to get a hold of me too. You know, I'm here with, if there's more that I can do to help you and what you're doing, uh, you know, let me know, or my colleague, Michelle, the amazing Michelle. So I just want to, again, thank you. And I wish you the best. You know, have a wonderful day today. And thank um, thanks again uh, for sharing your time and your knowledge with us today. Thank you for asking. I really appreciate being here. And I really appreciated meeting you and Michelle. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Brain Mastery Podcast brought to you by ABI Wellness. Be sure to follow us on social media channels at ABI Wellness. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.